You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. chapter number 14, Jesus spoke to his disciples and he is speaking to them soberly here about the cost of discipleship. Not one of the uh, most uplifting of passages that Jesus gives to his disciples now, is it? (laughs) He's talking about building, but the cost of building. He's talking about bearing a cross. He's talking about forsaking mom and dad and brother and sister and really even your own self. Now, that's not to say that you go out there and you don't feed yourself and you don't take care of yourself and you let your, yourself just you know, go to waste. That's not what it means. But it means I'm not chasing after that which my flesh desires anymore. I'm not trying to feed my flesh anymore. Now I am simply trying to serve God and do His will wherever that takes me. So this morning, I want to look at the walk of a disciple. I wonder to myself, what must it have been like to walk with the disciples? or to be one of the disciples of Jesus. Hey, I'm all about doing some hiking and some camping, but to do it for almost three years straight, (laughs) to be traveling around, I'm sure they stayed indoors from time to time, uh, and maybe even a good bit of that time. Some of them did have houses and did have families that they came from, yes. But as they followed Jesus around learning from his ministry, you see, Jesus, he didn't base his ministry out of a grand mansion or castle or Frankly, it doesn't seem he based it out of even a hovel. The Bible tells us that he had nowhere even to lay his head. You see, if we were to follow Jesus' example of ministry, it might be very quite different from what many preachers today's idea of ministry is. But Jesus knew he only had a short period of time, and he had much to accomplish in that short period of time, and he was going to dedicate himself wholly to it. So what was it like then? to be with the disciples during that time. Well, imagine you're walking with Jesus. You're probably going to be perfect, right? I mean, you have the best of all friends walking with you all every step of the way. Man, he's going to keep me from being tempted. He's going to keep me from, from falling and failing in temptation. He's going to keep me from saying stupid things. He's going to keep me from you know making bad choices. Boy, isn't this great? I'm with Jesus, walking with him on a day-to-day basis. I'm not going to make any mistakes. Is that what we saw happen with the disciples? No, no, not at all. That's not what happened. They made some mistakes, some mistakes that even made them cry, that made them grieve. But they learned, and they grew, and they went on to be used magnificently. What's it like to walk as a disciple? Well, we see some of it here in this passage and others that I'm going to read this morning. The first point here this morning of... The walk of a disciple is this, that a disciple battles sin and flesh. A disciple battles sin and flesh. Maybe this is one of the most disappointing realizations for a new Christian. I just got saved. My life has just been transformed. I have a new hope. But then tomorrow, 
that same temptation just comes walking right down the road again. That same crowd of people that I've been doing wrong things with, they're at my door knocking, they're calling, they're texting, they're showing up on my Facebook feed. And they're right there again, that, that same wrong group of people. I still have the desire for that music, and I still have the desire for those movies. I remember my pastor talking about when he got saved. He um, you know, received a tract, and he sat down in his, his room after having been witnessed to several times. He sat down with this tract that he found. I believe, I don't know if it was the one he found on the trolley or if it was one that somebody gave him and he just pocketed it. Anyways, but he was sitting in his bedroom and he pulled that tract out. The Lord had been working on his heart and he read it and he prayed to get saved there in his bedroom by himself. Now, there were some things that had to change. He went to a party with the same group of guys from Philadelphia, uh, the same you know crowd from the corner. And he went to a party and they handed him a beer and they handed him a joint. You know, he hadn't gone to church and they hadn't told him thou shalt not beer and thou shalt not smoke pot. They hadn't told him those things in church yet. And he sat there and he looked at it and he says, I just, I don't feel like this is my crowd anymore. I've, I've changed. I don't, I don't feel like I can do this anymore. And, and he went from smoking and drinking and, and, and drugs to, to nothing. Now that it's not quite so easy for everybody to get out of some of those habits. But he went and he decided, oh, this isn't me anymore. I, I just know it because the Holy Spirit was inside of him. And the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 no. There's something wrong with this. He said, they handed me that, that beer that was getting passed around. They handed him that joint that was getting passed around. He threw it away from him. He didn't really understand exactly why, but he knew this wasn't for him anymore, and he had to leave. Man, it bummed his friends out. But understand this. When we're tempted, we can't blame God for our temptation. You know James 1, 13 through 15, where it says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, every man is tempted, I mean, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. But then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Understand this, though. You will still battle on a daily basis temptation and sin. And that may look different for every one of us, but sin is sin. There are three main sources of temptation this morning. There are three main sources of temptation this morning. Number one, the world. The world. What is the world? We can say that, and sometimes I'll see preachers go on Facebook and say, okay, define, you know, talking about other bunch of preachers or Christians. Go ahead and give me a definition of the world. What would you say is the world? Well, the world and its systems, the world and its philosophies. In other words, its systems that it derived on its own, its philosophies that it derived on its own, its practices that it derived on its own are always going to be contrary to God. That's just how it works. That's how humanism works. When we take man and we elevate him, that already is contrary to God. But humanism is, is the main religion that is taught in our schools today. Now, they don't call it that, nor do they call it a religion. But that's exactly what it is. They take humans as the pinnacle of evolution and hold them up for everybody to, in a sense, worship. Look what the man has done. And, of course, there's different months where look what the woman has done and look what the black person has done and look what the indigenous person has done. And we elevate and hold. I'm not saying that we shouldn't sometimes praise man for the things that he has done. However. 
as Christians, we need to praise God for the things that he has done through that person. In fact, the Bible tells us to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, if he loves the world's systems and philosophies and practices, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world is going to tempt us. And that is why, as Christians, we try to cut ourselves off from as many of the worldly influences as we can. Now, we cannot, nor should we, completely isolate ourselves from the world. But we can control the influences that come. You see, I can't control everything that comes into my house at home. When the door opens, the dog runs out. That's just what happens when a two-year-old opens the door on a daily basis. Uh, sometimes the mosquitoes and the, the flies, they come in, you know, when it's warm outside. Among other things, ants, you know, will find their way in, uh, you know, during, during the warmer months. I can't control absolutely everything that comes into my house. Well, because when I open doors and windows, there are going to be things that come into that house that I simply cannot stop because I'm not able to. But there are a whole lot of things that I can control. You see, I don't have to have an open sewer line running into my home. You see, if, if there is sewage running through the pipes and up into the drains of my home and coming out onto the floor, I'm going to do something about that because it stinks, because it's damaging the floors or walls or ceilings, depending on where it's coming out. It stinks. It's causing damage. It's making my home unlivable. And how many homes in Augusta County today are unlivable spiritually? Mom and dad are always at each other's throats. The children are, are constantly rebellious and backbiting against mom and dad. And home is just not a place any of them want to be. Why? Because they've got an open source of sewage running into their homes. Of worldly influences. Via mostly the internet these days. Some people still use cable and dish network and that sort of thing. But most of the world has switched over to streaming via their internet these days for their entertainment needs. And they've got this open source of sewage. That's not to say that there isn't any good stuff on there. Of course there is. There's certainly useful things there, but it must be controlled. Must be controlled. And Colton uses his laptop for schoolwork. Um, he likes to mess around and do other things, but it's set so that he, there is only one site on all of the whole internet that he can visit, and that is abeka.com, <laughs> to go and to, and to watch you know, his, his uh, videos for class. That hasn't stopped him from trying. I get reports every week of everything that he has done, how much time he has spent using the magnifier and, and magnifying words on the screen, and I get reports of absolutely everything he has done on his laptop. Why? Well, to protect him. Because I know there's so much sewage out there. There's people out there trying to find little seven-year-old boys who are ignorant, who are immature, to use them. The world has a system, and I'm not to love it. The second source of temptation is the flesh. My flesh, your flesh. These are the old patterns of the flesh that are fighting with what we know God wants us to do. 
If you got saved a little bit later in life, then you probably had some patterns going on in your life. Some patterns of activity, some patterns of speaking, some patterns of thinking even, that are now, once you get saved, they're at odds with what the Holy Spirit is telling you you ought to be doing. It says in Galatians 5, 17 through 24, if you want to turn there, I'm going to read a, a lengthy passage here. Galatians 5, beginning in verse number 17, look at the, the, the battle that goes on in the Christian life. He says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and they are contrary the one to the other. Hey, I think this is vital for our understanding, that my flesh is not my friend. Maybe repeat that after me. Ready? My flesh is not my friend. Now, I said repeat it after me. I didn't say repeat it with me. You guys need to work on your instruction following here. <laughs> my flesh is not my friend. And if I let my flesh guide and lead me, in other words, if I say, well, whatever my belly wants, that's what I'm going to put in it. Whatever my eyes want, that's what I'm going to take in. Whatever my ears want, that's what I'm going to take in. Whatever my hands want to touch, that's what I'm going to do. Wherever my feet want to go, that's where I'm going to take them. If I let my flesh just have free reign, it's going to ruin me. It's going to destroy me. Those old patterns of the flesh, the old man, it fights what God wants us to do. It goes on to say, and they're contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. Oh, we know the things we ought to do. We know the things that ought to be a part of our lives, but our flesh has such strong power over us sometimes we don't do the things we would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest or revealed. We understand the works of the flesh. What are they? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings and such the like. In other words, this is not an exhaustive list. It can go on. And how do you know what belongs on that list? Since it's not exhaustive, that's the Holy Spirit inside you that's going to reveal what else belongs on that list as you follow the Spirit on a day-to-day -day basis. But then it goes on. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit when we follow the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit like we've been talking about on Sunday nights, what is that? When the Holy Spirit has control, what kind of things do we see evidenced in your life? Well, it's not adultery and it's not a fornication. It's not all those other things. It is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance against such. None of these things have a law against them. Thou shalt not be faith. Have faith. Thou shalt not be meek. You know, Thou shalt not be temperate. The law said it. Hey, it won't be long, though, till we see some laws telling us that we can't do right things and that we should do wrong things. I forgot to mention it in the announcement time. Um, there's a law in the House and there's a law in the uh, Senate of Virginia that they're swapping over to the other sides. I forget the exact numbers of the, the bills now, but there's two laws uh, that each the House and the De House, of, House of Delegates and the Senate are voting on to legalize those gambling machines that used to be in a bunch of the restaurants and gas stations and stuff. And then last year they had to take them all out. Well, now they're trying to legalize them again. I encourage you to speak up about it. I encourage you 
uh, to uh, go to the websites uh, for the Virginia government and write them letters, emails, let them know that this is not biblical. They need to vote against these things. The only reason they're voting for them is because of taxes. Oh, we get money. We get money from these things. No, we lose money because of these things. Not only does the individual lose money because they're going out there and they're gambling away and wasting the money that they're supposed to be using on their families or their, their wives or their children to feed and clothe them or to, to school them or anything like that. They're wasting their money, but also because it increases crime. And now there's going to be more police calls. There's going to be more ambulance calls and fire calls because there's increased crime in those areas. That always happens with gambling. It increases the crime which means that the county or the city or the state has to now spend more money to police those areas. Oh, it may gain us some money, but it certainly costs us a whole lot in the process. We need to vote no to that. So the three main sources, there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Matthew 4, 3 says this, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones me made bread. Here's a instance where Jesus himself was tempted. So how do we overcome temptation? You know, we can't always say that the devil is going to be the one tempting us. I would venture to say that the devil's probably never tempted me because he is one individual and he is in one place at one time. He's got a lot of traveling to do if he wants to be all around the world tempting all of us all the time. It may be that he doesn't even know my name. I have a hard enough time fighting my own flesh. So how do we overcome temptation? I guess I need to go to number two. How do we overcome it? Romans 6.6 6 says this, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So the old man has been crucified. That old pattern of living, we're not bound to it anymore. That is now not the only thing that we can do. Now we have a choice. We have freedom to choose something other than that. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Hey, stop and think about that for a second. Sometimes we think that the temptations which tempt us are greater and that nobody else understands. Well, that's not true at all. There's been no temptation which has come into your mind that is greater than any temptation that has come in anybody else's mind. But such is as common to man. But God is faithful. Well, God forgot this time when I was tempted. No, he didn't. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. He'll not give you a temptation that is, or allow a temptation to come that is so strong that you are unable to resist it with his power. But will, with the temptation, also make, it says here, a way to escape. There'll be an off-ramp. There'll be a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Notice the Bible did not say he would remove the temptation. Don't we wish that God would just take away the temptation? I mean, how many times have I prayed, God, please stop giving me an appetite for this. God, please just take away the temptations. And there are some temptations I can remove by myself. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the Bible doesn't ever give us any example of God removing the temptation, but instead giving us the power to bear it. To go through it and come out on the other side victorious. So how? Well, number one, we use God's word. Even Jesus, if we want to look at an example of somebody successfully combating temptation, think about the devil himself, the greatest of all liars and tempters, 
comes to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to tempt him. If there's anybody in this universe that is going to tempt Jesus to sin, it's going to be the devil. It's going to be Lucifer. I mean, think about it. They were probably great friends at one point in time, you know, in the past. Being that they were both there, you know, uh, in heaven, that Lucifer was probably one of the great archangels uh, back in the day. They were probably good friends at some point in time. And now here he's turned against God. He's turned against Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus has now come to undo what the devil has caused here on this earth. And now the devil is trying to make Jesus sin. And what does Jesus do to combat temptation? He quotes scripture every time. I read a verse last week, Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart. Why? That I might not sin against God. In a Christian school, you know, every morning we set our pledges to the American flag, to the Christian flag, and to the Bible. And that was part of the pledge to the Bible. Uh, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. We use God's word, which means you've got to memorize it, which means you've got to plan and organize, and I guess I should say strategize a little bit. You see, God used, or Jesus used scripture passages that were specific to his temptations. You know how? Was it because Jesus had an immaculate memory? I don't know if, I mean, we know that Jesus is God and that he is all powerful. Um, but I'm not, <laughs> I don't have an immaculate memory. And most of you know that quite well. I forget things a lot. But we've got to strategize a little bit. If we want to be up to the battle when it comes. Let's not minimize the use of Scripture. There's also the power to say no. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us what? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. In other words, you can and have the power to live soberly. Soberly means I recognize that there is real temptation and danger to my spiritual walk. I'm not ignoring it. I'm not living up here on this, this mountaintop of my head in the clouds. I know the battle's real, and I know I'm in great danger soberly, righteously, meaning that I can have victory. Not my own righteous though, righteousness, though, because we know that we can't produce that. Any righteousness that may appear in my life is not mine, but it is Christ working in me. And godly, in other words, behaving in a way that God would behave responding in a way to our situations as, as Jesus Christ would have responded, being godly in our lives in this present world, not waiting until we get to heaven to produce those things, but now in this present world, we have the power to say no. Also, we can avoid temptation, number three. Another way to uh, be victorious here, to overcome temptation, is to avoid temptation. Romans 13, 14 says this, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Have you ever taken out your, maybe, maybe back in the day it was your records or your eight tracks or it was your cassette tapes or your CDs even. And you've taken those things and you say, okay, I know I, I shouldn't be listening to this junk and I take it and I'm going to put it down here in this cabinet down under here because I don't, I, don't, I don't need to be listening to this stuff. And so I'm putting it down here. You've taken your, your bad movies and stuff and you say, I know I don't need to be watching this junk. So I stick it over in the corner of my closet. Well, why'd you do that? Maybe somebody gives you a case of beer or a, a bottle of wine and they thought they were being nice and giving you a gift and you thought to yourself, I, I know I don't need this stuff. And you take it and you stick it up in the, the hardest to reach spot in your cabinet and you just tuck it away up there. Well, what'd you do that for? 
Well, why did you keep it around? Well, I know the answer. You know the answer. You're making provision for the flesh. One day I think I might backslide. You know, one day I think I might just go ahead and kind of slip back into that for a little while. And so I'm going to keep it around for that eventuality. That's making provision for the flesh. There's a whole lot of ways we could apply this, but I ask this, what provision have you made for your sin? What are you unwilling to get rid of, even though you, ign- you know that it ignites a spiritual battle within you? Why would you purposefully walk into a spiritual battle if you didn't have to? There are some battles that we can't escape. There are some battles that we can't see coming. And there are some battles that we need to walk into. Like witnessing, that's a spiritual battle that we ought to walk into, you know, sword and shield in hand, helmet on, breastplate fast and tight. There are some battles we are meant to walk into, but why needlessly walk into every single spiritual battle that's around us? Sometimes that means that we've got to cut something out of our lives. It may change our life. It may change the way we, we behave. It may change the things we do. It may cut some people even out of our lives. The Bible says, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. You say, well, I didn't do it, but you watched somebody else do it, or you were with somebody else while they did it, or you joined somebody else while they did it, even though it may not have been your idea. Don't be partaker of other men's sins. Romans 13, 14 says this. I'm sorry, that was 1 uh, Timothy 5, 22. What provisions are you making for your flesh that you need to stop. Number four, you need to ask for help. James 5, 16 says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. When he says confess your faults to one another, what he is saying is there's going to be faults. And when there are faults, brethren, you seek help from one another. Well, that takes a little bit of humility, doesn't it? Because we like to come in here all nice and dressed up and appear to be these perfect little Christians walking around. Now, you know and I know that none of us are perfect little Christians walking around, even though we try to put on that front. And it takes a little bit of humility to confess our faults to one another. And there's times where that's absolutely necessary. Number five, we need to seek God's forgiveness often. Like when he says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what this means? It means that the moment the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, not, okay, I know this was wrong tonight when I pray, I'll get it taken care of, or tomorrow morning when I pray, I'll get it taken care of. No, the very moment the Holy Spirit convicts you, you deal with it right then and there. You confess it to God and you ask for forgiveness. The sixth tool to help you be victorious here is to yield to the Holy Spirit. You yield to the Holy Spirit. How do you yield to the Holy Spirit? Well, it starts when you open your eyes in the morning. You start. You start by talking to Him and walking with Him in the morning. That's going to help you tremendously because then you're not fighting the battle in your own strength. Satan is going to keep reminding you of your failures. Jesus doesn't do that. God doesn't constantly bring up your sin and, and throw it at you, try to muddy you up with your past. No, that, that's the devil's job. You ignore him. A disciple of Christ, however, keeps fighting sin. And FYI, I hate to, to, to burst your bubble on this one, but that fight never ends. 
Oh, why can't I just get victory, you know, and never have sin ever again? Sorry to trouble you with this, but the fight is never going to end. Now, that's not to say that you're not going to find some victory at times. That's not to say that you're not going to be able to overcome something. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a a thought pattern. Maybe it's lies or, or gossiping or bitterness or anger, whatever it is. That's not to say that you won't find victory for the most part in those things because you can, but it's not you just happened upon it. That happens purposefully by following these scriptural steps to get victory over those things. This I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, so a disciple during his walk is still going to be battling sin and temptation on a daily basis. A disciple is also going to strive to be sanctified. What does sanctified mean? Sanctified means set apart, something that is distinguished or sacred. Okay, if I were to go and look at my nephew Colin, okay, he's changed, you know, a good bit over the last several months as he uh, joined the Marines and went to boot camp and went to combat training and is still in training. You know, he's, he's changed quite a bit and not only physically, uh, but also mentally and in his personality, I'm sure. And if I were to go and I were to see him wherever he is right now, he's probably wearing something that distinguishes him as set apart to service for something specific. And so there would be his uniform, which says United States Marines on it. Okay, now I know that he is distinguished and set apart to specifically the United States Marines. It would also, there would be patches. You know, there would be one with the United States flag indicating to which country he is serving. There might be another patch indicating which unit he is on. So this is the specific method in which he is serving our country through the United States Marines for the United States. Sanctified as a Christian means that we are distinguished, easily distinguished from the man and woman your age from the same place who is not saved, who is not a follower of Christ. It means we are set apart. It means that we are to be a pure in a way that sets us apart to God and distinguishes us as one in his service and not in the service of the world. Think about that. What about your life distinguishes you from a man, woman, or child who is not saved, who is following after the world systems? You know, this applies in a whole host of ways. It says in 2 Timothy 2, 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ, listen to what we're supposed to do, depart from iniquity. That doesn't mean that there's this this natural um, difference there. It it, it means I have to determine I'm going to leave. I'm going to turn my direction away from iniquity. He says, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. 2 Timothy 2, 19-21, good verses. Okay, so a disciple strives to be sanctified. Understand this, we serve a holy God, 
We see many times throughout the Old Testament, it talks about the holiness of God. In fact, he is thrice holy, three times holy. It says in Isaiah 6, 3, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Of course, I could go on to a whole lot, a whole lot of other scripture passages that talk about the holiness of God. Exodus 15, 11 says this, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearless, I'm sorry, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You see, we serve a holy God. God is so holy, in fact. He is so sanctified and set apart from sin that that's what prevents you and I from just going to heaven when we die because we want to. And he understood that. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. He understood that when you died in and of yourself, you had no choice but to be separated from God for an eternity because of our sins. He, he can't be with the sin. He has to separate himself from it. It tells us that in Revelation 21, 27, where he says, And there shall no wise enter into it, heaven, anything that defileth or anything that worketh an abomination or maketh a lie. Anything that sins cannot come into the presence of God in heaven. And because of that, he had to send his son to be that sacrifice for his blood to cover our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can then have our sins washed away and stand in his righteousness then. Perfection, but not our own. Jesus Christ righteousness. And so since God is holy, he has also called us to holiness. In 1 Peter 1.14, it says this, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. All manner of conversation. And that's our lifestyle. We're to be distinct, distinguished in every way. In our speech, in our relationships, in our philosophy, in our belief, in our family life. Tell you what, it, it doesn't take much to be distinct in those things these days, is it? With the amount of people who refuse to get married and the amount of people uh, who divorce willy-nilly and remarry willy-nilly whenever they feel like it, boy, it doesn't take much to stand out from the crowd these days, does it? If we just simply do what the Bible says, we are going to be a, well, it depends on how you see it, a bright and shining light on a hilltop, or to some, a blinding and painful light that they don't want to see. Our family life ought to represent, be something that is distinct and different. Even our appearance is to be something that is distinct and different. To patch the pirate song, he says it's, you know, that it's good to be different, not like, you know, with two left thumbs, you know, that kind of different, <laughs> but uh, that we are to be distinguishable by the people who, who see us and who know us. You see, this is called the doctrine of separation, not the doctrine of isolation, not hiding ourselves behind walls or out in the middle of nowhere, refusing to be a testimony and a witness for Christ, but we are to be separated, coming out from among them and being different. Grace develops holiness. You see, I can't just determine to be more holy. You're not going to cooperate with me. There we go. 
I can't just determine to be more holy. I can't just, you know, make a list of, of ways that I can be holy and, and uh, just attack those things. We can't sustain holiness as a Christian. How do we, how do we then become holy? Well, we learn spiritual growth. We learn where we need to separate ourselves. We learn when we need to separate ourselves from the things that are sinful and are questionable by our spiritual growth. Again, it's a byproduct. As I go closer to the Lord, as I spend more time with Him, as I'm led in the Spirit, and I'm, as we talked about in Sunday school, in the way, we begin to learn how and when and where to separate ourselves. Living a separated life isn't easy, though. Not everyone is going to understand our convictions or the things that we won't do or the things that we will do. The Bible says in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should do what? We should live soberly. I talked about that word already. Righteously, I talked about it. And godly in this present world. But it's not always going to be easy. In Matthew 10, 24, it says, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? I mean, they, they called Jesus all sorts of things. They said he was working for the devil as he cast out devils. I mean, they called him all sorts of things. He says, if they call me names, don't be surprised if they're not going to appreciate your holiness as well. How do we get holy? Grace builds it in our life. And again, what is grace? It's not me deserving holiness. It's not me being good enough. Man, if I can achieve this level of holiness, woo look at all the bright lights shining around me, how holy I am. That's not how it works. I'm way down here. I'm a pig wallowing around in the mud. And God says, I know you don't deserve this. In fact, you, you, you need a kick in the rear, but I'm going to take you out and I'm going to wash you off. And I'm going to set you apart and help you to be more holy. That is grace. Let's not allow, on the other hand, though, let's not allow our separated lives to turn into bitterness and hatred towards those who aren't. Oh, I would never say that. I would never do that. You know, and then looking down our nose and bitterness at those who did or do, Christians or not. You see, John 13, 35 says this, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How are the people around you going to know you're a disciple of Christ? If ye have love one to another. Hey, holiness is, is certainly a, a, a very important part. Why? Because a lack of holiness is going to harm our witness. But it is our love that is a mark of a true disciple of Christ. A lack of holiness is going to harm our witness. They see us acting the fool and they're going to think, oh, I don't want what they have. They're not any different than I am. They don't have, seem to have anything that I don't have. So why should I make this big life-changing, so to, so to speak, decision that's going to make me more like them? A lack of holiness will harm our witness, but it is our love that is a mark of a true disciple. And then number three this morning, I'm not sure if it went, there it is. A disciple surrenders completely his will to the Lord. Romans 12.1 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, 
which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which, what that is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. A disciple surrenders his will to God's. You see, as the disciples followed Jesus around uh, the countryside of Judea and Samaria, they probably had other things going on in their lives too. You know, they had to leave their jobs, but yet their family still needed to eat. They had aches and pains. They had stomach problems. They had achy feet and knees. They had issues and problems going on in their life. They, they, you know, they didn't just leave all of their stuff and everything went rosy for them. You think, I have, you have problems. So did they. But you know what they had to determine? They had to say, what I want is secondary to what God wants me to do. What I want to be doing, where I want to be, the things I would like to be doing is secondary. Just like when you get married and you have to say, and some people take this back, but you have to say, what I want now for myself is secondary to my spouse. When you begin to have children, you say, what I want for myself is now tertiary <laughs> or, or fourth or fifth or sixth you know, to my children's needs now. And you begin to set yourself further and further and further back in priority in the line. A disciple surrenders completely his will to God. Now, full surrender, this is really the beginning point, not the end point, even though it's my last point. Full surrender to God is, is where we begin. You get saved, you become a child of God, and then you need to give it to God, a full surrender. A full cleansing like he gave you when you got saved. And now a full surrender. What causes me to want to do that? A full surrender is motivated by God's mercy to us. I may not want to do it. And then I may want to do it, depending on where I am spiritually speaking. But, man, God's been so merciful to me. Why on earth would I hold back from him? He gave so much, sacrificed so much. Why on earth would I hold back? Maybe there's never been a time in your life where you determined a moment where you said, I surrender my life to the Lord. Whatever may be left of it, whether it's minutes, hours, years, decades, I fully surrender my life. What is left of it to God? And it's motivated by God's mercy to us, not motivated by our effort to earn salvation or favor. I cannot earn salvation in any way. It must be granted to me by grace of God, by the grace of God, and by the mercy of God. And true surrender, surrender is also complete. Complete. Holding nothing back. Here, I've opened all the doors to all my closets and all the rooms and all of the sheds. Here, it is open and is, it is completely an open book to you. You may not like what you find in some of those closet corners, but nevertheless, here it is. And Lord, it is yours to do with what you wish. And so if you want me to go into this cabinet and take out all those movies or all of those that, that music that I've been hanging on to or to go to that cabinet and take out the, the alcohol that I've been hanging on to for a, 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 one of my bad days, if, Lord, if that's what you've called me to do, then I'm going to go in and I'm going to just take it out. 
I'm going to dump it down the drain no matter how much money it might have cost me in the past. I'm going to go out and I'm going to you know, use it for target practice. That's one of the best ways to get rid of stuff like that. Shoot it. Because then you get some enjoyment out of it. Then you got to clean it up afterwards. But um, I enjoy that sort of uh, getting rid of things like that. But it is complete. That's how it's supposed to be. Jesus didn't hold back something, did he? Jesus didn't say, okay, listen, you know what? I'll be born and I'll live, you know, the life growing up and and the ministry. And and I'll even be hated by some of my people, but I'm not going to go so far as to be killed on the cross in the ways that it's going to happen. I mean, that's pretty far. I mean, that's complete humiliation. I'm not willing to go that far. You say, well, that's silly. It wouldn't have accomplished anything. We would still be lost and dead in our sins if Jesus had held back. And you'd be right. What can God do do through me, though, if I completely surrender to him? And it is reasonable. Just like we saw in Romans 12, 1, where he says that we are to present our bodies, not not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. It's one thing to determine what you would die for. It's a whole lot harder to choose to live for that thing, though. A living sacrifice. He called us to be holy here, to be acceptable unto God, which is what? Which is the pinnacle of the Christian life. Holiness and being acceptable to God. Only the best of the best. Only the preachers. Only the called can be holy and acceptable unto God. Is that what the verse says? It says, no. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's the basics of what I expect from you. You see, when my, my students turned in their homework in the morning and I walked around checking homework, I didn't say, wow, this is great. This is amazing. You know what? You get an extra 10 minutes of, P- or of recess today because you did your homework. No, no, it's not how it went. It was okay, good, good. I mean, I'm glad you did your homework. You're going to get a good grade for having completed your homework. That's wonderful. But that's the least you could have done. The very least was just simply getting the assigned work down. Now, you could have gone further. You could have done more. That would have been praiseworthy. But the very least you could do was accomplish the task that I've assigned you to do. And here he says, your reasonable service is to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. So Matthew 10, in another section where we, we started in Luke 14, and Matthew 10 talks about the same passage. Verse 37, he says, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. You see, there's a difference between a believer and a disciple. This morning, are you a believer or are you a disciple? Or are you not a believer yet? Are you not saved? Maybe you've been religious. Maybe you've done some religious things. But have you ever fully placed your faith and trust on Jesus Christ's work alone on that cross to save you from your sin and his resurrection, to give power over death and over sin? If you've trusted in anything else other than Jesus Christ's finished work, then your salvation wasn't by, by grace through faith. But it was by grace through faith plus whatever else it is you're believing in too. And that's not salvation. Where do you find yourself this morning? 
Are you unsaved? Are you a believer? And are you a disciple? You see, a disciple doesn't just give in to the battle of sin and flesh and ignore it. A disciple is sober about it, realizing that it's there and determining to fight it. A disciple strives to be sanctified, distinguished, set apart from sin unto God's service, not just for your brethren to know and not just for God to know, but for the world to also recognize it. And a disciple surrenders his will to God's will and says, like Jesus said to his heavenly father, not my will, but thine be done. Even if it meant, even though it meant, and he knew it meant that he was going to on the, on the next day be sentenced to death and go through such extreme torture and punishment. There's a difference between a believer and a disciple. You need to make a definite decision to full surrender to God. You need to seek God's searching. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. You need to seek God's searching daily and then his forgiveness. Maybe this morning you need to take an outside view of your life and ask, can others see a distinction in me? That doesn't mean you need to walk around with a sandwich sign that says Christian on it. It doesn't mean that we all need to, you know, all the ladies need to wear these, you know, weird, you know, dresses and bonnets and stuff. And that really, 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 you know, sets us apart. You know, not that, not, that's not what it means. We can dress modestly and different and it be noticeable without going quite that extreme. Can others see a distinction in your life, not only of God's holiness, but also of his love? Some good questions to think about today as we go home. Maybe this morning you're here or you're watching or you're listening and you don't know 100% for sure that you're saved. Would you come forward during the invitation? Would you reach out to me in some way or another after church or, or one way or another, reach out to me so that I can talk to you and show you from the word of God how to know 100% for sure you're on your way to heaven. Christian, maybe the Lord, hopefully the Lord has worked in your heart concerning something this morning. I hope you don't walk out these doors today without the moving of the Holy Spirit at all. Having been cold to it. Maybe the Lord's worked in your heart concerning something this morning. Would you Deal with it this morning. Maybe you need to surrender. Maybe you've done it in the past, but you've taken back some of it. Maybe you need to fully surrender again. Maybe you realize there's some areas of your life where you're not sanctified, not distinguished or set apart. Maybe those are some areas that you need to surrender. Maybe this morning you have been battling and losing. Well, what's worse is not battling and losing. Maybe this morning you realize you've not been fighting the sin in your life the way you ought to be. Whatever the case is, if the Lord's worked in your heart this morning, would you get it dealt with while the piano plays? Let's all stand to our feet, bow our heads and close our eyes. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.